Go ahead, grab a seat. Now, I'm assuming, and I would hope that it's true in a ministry, in a marriage ministry like this, that there are things all of you do for your spouse, whatever that might be, from practical things like taking out the trash or doing something around the house or more romantic things like giving a gift or writing a note or giving flowers or whatever it might be. You all do things for your spouse. Why do you do those things? Why do you serve your spouse? Well, you might think, well, I'm supposed to. The Bible tells me so. The Bible says I'm supposed to love my wife like Christ loved the church. The Bible says I'm supposed to submit to my husband as to the Lord. Maybe that's one reason you might say. Or you say, well, because I made a promise to that person. I I stood there on my wedding day and I, I made all these promises to them. Or it might be, well, if I don't, then, you know, the next accountability group with my small group is going to be rough for me. So that's why I do these things for my spouse, whatever it might be. But hopefully, at the bottom of all of that, you do those things for your spouse because you have an attachment to that person. To put it the most simple way, you love that person. And what you love isn't just some commitment, some vow that you made. It's not just... Uh, something else, but it's this person. Everything you do is focused on somebody. Same is true for the Christian life. Why do you live the Christian life? Well, you could say, well, the Bible tells me so. I'm, I, I'm supposed to uh, do all these things. Or you, you might say, well, I, I promised I would do those things. When I became a Christian, I told God I would follow him. Or it might be because yeah, I better do those things or else accountability is going to be a little awkward for me next time. Might be those same reasons, but what it should be at the bottom line of all of it is there's an attachment to a person. You love somebody, and that somebody is Jesus Christ. And I was thinking about that as we heard this sermon this last weekend that was very much focused on him. And Christ talked about his humanity, his deity, his kingdom. And, and let's be honest, to some extent, it was there are parts of it that it was kind of It was kind of heady. We're we're diving deep into the Old Testament where we're thinking about that Jesus is the God-man. Yeah, that's a a mystery that we're not going to fully be able to wrap our minds around. But does that have a purpose, that that time that we spent this weekend and the time that we're going to spend tonight? Well, it absolutely does. Just like if you came tonight and, and the message was all about how awesome your spouse is. You'd be like, that'd be kind of awkward. Um, well, just for the sake of illustration, come, come with me here. It's just 30 minutes of, hey, this is how awesome your spouse is. This is all the unique things uh, about them, the things that make them special, all the amazing things that they do. Don't you think you would leave here motivated to do things for your, your spouse? Even if I never even said, okay, now go do this. Don't you think you would be motivated to do that? And, and that's what I want us to get tonight is as we think about who Christ is, we should be amazed. We should look at Jesus Christ, the God-man, and we should say, wow, he is awesome. There is no one like him. And that should motivate us to then go and and live for him. And and if we looked at the text there in Luke, uh, or if you listen to the sermon, most of the focus there was on the deity of Christ. Uh, But what I, and that's an important 
topic that's important for us, even as we do evangelism. There's so many people out there that want to just give you the line that, well, Jesus was just a good teacher. Um, and that's just not true. There's, there's cults that d- deny the deity of Christ, uh, whatever it might be. But tonight, uh, I want us to think about something maybe we've thought about less in our life, and that is Christ's humanity. I want us to think about the fact that God became a man, that Jesus Christ was a man. He had a physical body. He lived in this world. And and the service I I was in, I don't know if he mentioned this specifically at every one, but on the back of the worksheets, he mentioned a book called The Man Christ Jesus by Bruce Ware. And in this book, it's about theological reflections on the humanity of Christ. He thinks about eight different things. And I thought it'd be helpful since I know some of you with young kids, it's not like, oh, you know what? Every week I just read all the books on the back of the worksheet that Pastor Mike puts out. Um, I thought it might be helpful for us to think through those eight reflections uh, that he writes about in, the, in this book. And what I want us to see is with every one of, he does a great job in this book of showing every one of these reflections comes with application. When we think about who Jesus is, it's going to show us, well, then this is what we should go do. So we're going to work through these quickly, but first, number one, the first reflection is taking on human nature, that Jesus Christ, God, the eternal Son of God, took on the form, he became a man. And he does a good job of of explaining this with this phrase, while the deity of Christ was fully possessed, it it was not fully expressed due to his having taken on a human nature. And he gives a illustration in the book, uh, similar if you're familiar to the old story, The Prince and the Pauper. If you're a child of the 90s like me, maybe you remember the Mickey Mouse version of this old story, but where, where the prince trades places with the, a poor beggar child. And now, when he is dressed as a beggar, is he any less the prince? than he was in the castle? No. He still possesses all the you know, inherent qualities of being the prince, but he is not fully expressing them. And Christ, he fully possessed his deity, but as a human, he didn't fully express it. And we learn a lot about this from the Bible in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, which say, "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. There was a lot of discussion there about what's meant by this phrase, he emptied himself. What does that mean? And a lot of people dig into that and try to say, well, he kind of gave up, you know, if you're not careful, you end up saying, well, he gave up his deity. No, he did not give up his deity. It doesn't say that Jesus poured out part of himself. Jesus didn't subtract anything from himself when he became a man. He added something. He added a human nature. And the emphasis there in emptied himself is that he sacrificed. I mean, you want to talk about a step down. The eternal son of God becomes a man. I mean, what an act of sacrifice, an act of sacrifice unlike anything you and I could ever do, is what Christ did for us. And the emphasis here is on his sacrifice. 
And I want us to realize, how does that passage start there in Philippians 2? Have this mind among yourselves. That when we consider Jesus taking on human nature, what we have to consider, even before we get to the crucifixion, which it gets to in that passage eventually, is Jesus Christ becoming a man is one of the most humbling acts of sacrifice and service ever. And God says, you need to think that way. And even an application for us in this ministry is empty your spe- yourself for your spouse. As you look at Jesus and what he did, think about your spouse. And I think one of the most important elements in any marriage is this idea of sacrifice and service. Why did Jesus have any, any reason on our part to do what, what he did? Was it because you were so great? Was it because I'm so awesome? No, neither of those things are true, much less any reason for Jesus to do what he did. He did it because he loved us. And you're going to look at your spouse, and there's going to be times where you're like, yeah, they're not being very awesome today. Well, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't say that about you? But he emptied himself, taking the form of a, of a servant when he didn't have to, but because he loved you. Let's think about that as we think about our spouses. The second reflection is on how Christ was empowered by the Spirit. Empowered by the Spirit. In several different chapters in this book, he comes across the idea of, why was Jesus perfect? And lots of times you think, well, because he was God. And he basically says, yes, but that's not really what drove Jesus to be all that he was. He points out that Scripture all over the place points to how Jesus was empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit, where it says this, in other words, although he came as one who has, was both fully God and fully man, he also lived his life as one indwelt with and empowered by the Spirit of God. And you can just jot down these references, but Isaiah 11, a messianic passage, talks about this stump of Jesse, and what's the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. There's a side topic, just Jesus feared the Lord. That's an amazing thing to think about. Or Jesus reads this passage in a synagogue, Isaiah chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Jesus emphasized this. And what we need to realize is When Jesus left, he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to live among you. Even notice the parallels in these verses, Acts 10, 38, how Jesus of Nazareth, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. In Acts 1, 8, Jesus says this to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus is the perfect example of a life lived in the Spirit, of a life walking by the Spirit, of a life full of the Spirit. He is the ultimate example of that. That should amaze us, but it should also spur us on to action. And I think one specific way, thinking about this verse especially, should be We should evangelize with confidence. We should evangelize with confidence because that power 
Jesus was anointed within the Holy Spirit, he has now given the Holy Spirit to us. And he says, you're going to be my witnesses. And perhaps there's no greater time for us to hear this than a couple weeks before Easter, to realize we have the message of a risen Savior to share with the world. I might think, oh, yeah, but I don't know. And I don't. You have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. God can use you because of the Spirit that lives inside of you. Number three, Jesus, the Bible says he was increasing in wisdom. Luke 2, 52 says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, again, do we totally understand how this worked? No, but the Bible clearly says Jesus learned stuff. Just like he, he grew, he, he wasn't born however tall he was, he grew physically, he also grew as a human mentally. He learned things. And even when you read passages about him talking with the teachers of the law in the temple as a 12-year-old boy, you shouldn't just jump to, well, he was God, so yeah, duh. No, he, he was a human little boy that had grown in wisdom. Where says this, it stands to reason that the Spirit of God did with Jesus what he seeks to do with all of us in whom he dwells. He illumined the word of God to Jesus' mind and cultivated that word in his heart as Jesus read, studied, heard, and was taught that precious Spirit-inspired word. Jesus learned, and Jesus probably learned through studying the Bible. It's a pretty clear application for us. Commit yourself to diligent Bible study. Say, God, I want to grow in wisdom like my Savior did. The man Christ Jesus learned, grew. He says this, Jesus was what might be thought of as the Psalm 1 prototype. Psalm 1, it talks about the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. That's, Jesus was the prime example of that. Number four, Jesus growing in faith. Jesus growing in faith. How does that work? Well, consider this, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus learned obedience? How did he do that? Was he disobedient before? Well, no, he always was perfectly obedient. He's the eternal son of God. But what he points out here, even look at verse 8, he learned obedience through what he suffered. How did Jesus Christ learn obedience? Well, he came across situations as a human he had never come across before. He had never been a human before. He had never had to deal with the, the suffering of human life before. Even as he get, gets toward the cross, he had never been forsaken by his father before. But he grew in all of those things. Where it says, must it not be that Hebrews is indicating that Jesus learned to obey the Father through the whole of his life with an obedience that was rendered in increasingly difficult situations as he grew and developed? 
he learned to obey increasingly divine demands with their accompanying increasingly difficult opposition and affliction through the whole of his life, which prepared him for the greatest of all divine demands upon him and the greatest attending suffering he would, he would or could ever experience. Was Jesus not the night before he died in the garden saying, Father, if there is another way, let this cup pass from me? Yeah, he, he was. He, he learned obedience as he encountered these increasingly difficult situations. That God even used trials and suffering to, to see the man, Christ Jesus, learn obedience. Would he not use the same then for us? Application for us, embrace the growth that comes with trials and suffering. God is going to seek to make you perfect, not just through all the, the great times, but through the hard things in life. And that's exactly how Jesus Christ, as Hebrews says, learned obedience. And you might look at situations in your life or with work or with health or with your kids and say, why is this happening? This doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem fair. God has a purpose with this. And he wants you to learn obedience. And even it talks about Jesus with his loud cries and prayers to God. You can embrace the growth. One, another way you can do that is through your own prayer life when times are hard. Number five, thinking about Jesus resisting temptation. Jesus resisting temptation. And he makes two points here. And he says, number one, Jesus was genuinely tempted. These were real temptations that Jesus felt. But number two, Jesus was impeccable. Jesus was impeccable. Now that even, when you think of impeccable, you think of just something that's perfect or flawless. But in a theological context, it gets to a debate that if you went to, especially Bible college or seminary, uh, like me, you know, you like to, could Jesus have sinned? Could, could he have? I mean, he was fully human. If they were real temptations, could he have sinned? It's an interesting question to think through because he was fully God yet fully man. And what Ware argues, and I think is a good argument, he says, no, Jesus could not have sinned because Jesus is God and God cannot sin. But that's not why Jesus didn't swim. I mean, sorry, didn't sin. <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself here because he gives a, an illustration then of a swimmer. That's, that's where I was going with this. And he talks about, imagine somebody training to break the world record for the longest swim. You know, and they're training, and he says he thinks it's somewhere around 70 miles. So, so they're training to, to swim for 70 miles. And they're doing this, and as they get ready to, to give it a try, they realize this is a pretty dangerous thing we're trying to do. So, hey, I've got some buddies, and they're going to be right behind me in a boat the whole time, following me along. But the swimmer, he, he's trained really hard, and he does it. He's for longest swim. Well, could he have drowned? No, because his buddies were right behind him in the boat. He, he, it was not possible for him to, to drown. They would have saved him. Does that, is that why he didn't drown? No, he didn't drown because he swam the whole way. And so we shouldn't just think, well, Jesus, he didn't sin because he was God. Well, yes, that's true, and he could not have sinned. But that's not necessarily why Jesus didn't sin. It, he didn't sin even in his humanity. He was the perfect sacrifice for us. He, he, 
He was the second Adam. He did what Adam did not. He resisted temptation perfectly as a human. And let's not write that off, well, he was, he was God. No, he, the Bible shows us how he did it. And that's something we should think about, our application, fight temptation with Scripture. When we see Jesus encountering temptation, when the devil comes to him, every time, boom, Jesus responds with Scripture. And this gets back to some of the other ones, that Jesus was empowered with the Spirit, that Jesus was growing in his faith, that he was learning in, in wisdom. And you've got to have those same things and now apply them to temptation. As I'm struggling with temptation, I'm, I'm filling my mind with God's word to fight that temptation. Learn from example of Jesus. Ware writes, we may sing, this is an old hymn, may the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day, but if we don't read diligently and meditate regularly on the word of Christ, we simply will not have the mind of Christ. It's not going to happen unless we do happen unless we do what Christ did. The next one, he, he reflects on Jesus living as a man and even asks, why did Jesus have to come as, as a man, as a male specifically? And he gives through 12 reasons, and I'll just highlight a few of them, but one is Jesus is the eternal son of God, that, that God, he doesn't have, you know, X and Y chromosomes uh, like the males in this room do, but he is shown throughout scripture to be the eternal father, and Jesus shown as the son. This also fulfilled prophecies to Abraham, to David. Pastor Mike even opened his sermon talking about Jesus as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Those were male roles. And in the New Testament, we see Jesus pictured as the bridegroom. All of these things. And just a brief application, but as we think about God's design behind male and female in a world that on so many levels wants to disregard what God has taught, we want to accept God's roles for men and women. Admit not just grudgingly, all right, well, whatever, but God knows what he is doing. God is the one who designed all of this. When we follow his plan, it will be for the best. But I trust we talk about that a lot here. Number seven, thinking about dying in our place. Jesus dying in our place where writes, to be sure, he had to be the God-man for the atonement to be efficacious. While he had to be more than a mere man, he could not have been less than fully a man. And he talks a lot in this chapter about the idea of penal substitution, which is really at the heart of what you and I believe, that Jesus Christ died as kind of a, even a penal and legal substitute for you and me, that he took the punishment that you and I deserve. And he makes the point that Jesus had to be a man to do this because, well, for one thing, we are humans. We are men and women. Jesus had to be a, a human to really be our substitute. Points to Hebrews 2, 14 and 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, Jesus, even to die, had to become a human. Because humans, that's what we do. If he would just remain God, God cannot 
truly die. So Jesus had to be a human to really participate in, in, in death. Where writes, Christ had to be human in order for this imputation of our sin to take place. If you were divine only, it is inconceivable and impossible that our sin would be imputed to him. That Jesus Christ is perfectly God and perfectly man was the only one that could be the substitute for you and for me. But the Bible makes one message very clear. He is the substitute. And he took that punishment fully. There is nothing left to be paid. So even application for us, rest in the fact that your debt is paid in full. If you have turned from your sin, if you have put your faith in Christ, there is no condemnation left for you to pay. He was the perfect substitute. He has taken your place. It's over. It is finished. Isn't that an amazing truth? And isn't it so often that we can struggle with holding on to guilt and holding on to shame for sin that Jesus Christ died for, that he is paid for? And I'm sure there's some of you here tonight that you're still carrying the burden of your sin. You're still carrying the weight of all that you have done against God. And you need to know there is a substitute. That's what Jesus calls. He says, come, take my burden upon you. Let me give you rest And he does that because he took your place. Last, he reflects on Jesus being raised, reigning, and returning in victory. Raised, reigning, and returning in victory. And encourages us to think through all of those things as Christ as a human. That he rose again as a human. And we'll come back to that. But even that Jesus reigns right now is still the God-man. He points to, sorry, I have the wrong reference on this next slide. That should be Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's the right text there, wrong reference at the top. But we're all familiar with the Great Commission, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Well, let's jump back a verse. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Well, does that mean that Jesus, as he, you know, the son, the eternal son of God didn't have all authority before as God? Doesn't the Bible teach various places that Jesus is the one that created the world? So he didn't have authority? Where it says this, it is the human Jesus who is given a kind of authority he didn't have before, and it is the human Jesus who commands his disciples to go in his name. As the Messiah who bought the nations with his shed blood on the cross, he receives rightly full authority over those nations to bring them into his fold, all of those who the Father has given to him. It's amazing to think about. And and as we think about the resurrection, think about that. The the Bible describes Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. Well, what does that mean? And even if you think about the Bible, he's not the first person to get raised from the dead. I mean, he raised people from the dead before he died, so he wasn't the first. Then even you could go back to the Old Testament and see people that are raised from the dead. Well, Jesus is, is unique. All those people that have been raised from the dead before, guess what happened to them? They died. Again, that's a unique claim. There's going to be a handful of people in heaven. Yeah, I died twice. Whoa, weird. Um, Jesus, he died, and he rose again, never to die again. 
And the Bible says that if you are a Christian and you die, you are going to experience that same thing. I love to think about that when I go to funerals for Christians. And when I watch, because I'm, I'm the pastor and I wait around till everyone else leaves to make sure they put that thing in the ground, I watch that thing go down into the ground. I see them bring in all the construction stuff and, and pound the ground till it's all smooth. And I think, if that person was a believer, they're coming out of that thing. Not like, like, really? I believe that. I believe that the last funeral I went to, he's going to come popping up out of there again, for real, like in a real new body. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what happened to Jesus. He says, that's what's going to happen to all that put their faith in Christ. And if you die, that's what's going to happen to you, for real. So application for us, hope in the resurrection. Even now, this is the young marrieds group, so we don't talk about death as much, or we don't think about it as much. But the reality is, unless Jesus comes back, every single one of us in this room is going to die. Right now, it might be more real as you think about friends or uh, family or parents that are passing away. Just think about, for all believers, the hope that we have in the resurrection, that death is not the end, that we will, just like Jesus, rise again from the dead and have a glorified body forevermore. So as we think about Jesus, as we reflect on his humanity, as we think about his deity, I hope those are things that we can sink our mental teeth into and we can ponder those things and be amazed at those things. But I also hope we see how that should motivate us and how everything that we do is attached to this person, the man, Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we praise you for everything that we've talked about tonight, God, and even we went through this quickly, and there was so much to think about, but God, there is no one like Jesus, and and there's a reason why we stand here and we sing songs about him, and we say, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God forevermore. We're going to sing his praise forever, forever he is glorified. God, there is no one like him. He is our savior. He is our substitute. He is our leader. He is our Lord. God, we love him. And I pray that as we reflect on him and his character, God, we would be instructed, we'd be motivated to live, to live like him, God, and that you would be so gracious as to mold us into his image and make us look more and more like him, even in this life, in this life. God, and we look forward to the day then when we will be raised from the dead just like Jesus was, and reign with him, God, forevermore. We look forward to that day. Bless our discussion now. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you break up-